Hello, and welcome right on back to another week, another episode of Murder's a Drag with me, your hostess, with something, probably not the mostest, Aura Van Dank. I am so excited to be back at this table, sturdy and from Walmart, with this look, not from Walmart, but close, and a new story to tell. When I posted my first video back, I got a comment saying that they couldn't hear because of the audio at the beginning, which I entirely assumed meant the theme song that I have that I played on my guitar when I first started the show. And I was like, oh, I never really say anything important in the very beginning. It's just like, you know, my, my goofy clips in the beginning that it's just me fucking up, being a fuck up, basically. And then I realized somehow, some way, by the grace of Kesha, Kesha ended up in in the the video. Praying right. was in it. Very loud. Through like I think the entire song played in the beginning of my podcast. And I just want to say that I 100% appreciate those who still watched it and still listened to it and like gave me positive feedback and were like we're happy you're back because Kesha was definitely blaring at the beginning. If you watch on YouTube, if you listen on Spotify, I'm sorry. You probably never know what I'm talking about. And who even knows if you're listening on Spotify at this point. But I'm always going to post there. So if you are, don't worry. I won't abandon you. But I think a lot of your classmates there probably aren't very happy. And who can blame them? Anyway, moving on. This week has been kind of a whirlwind for me. Like I said, the previous episode, I was going to see Florence the next day and... Wow, was it amazing. I screamed for like six full hours, every lyric to every song. Not sorry to the people in my section, but kind of sorry because they probably only heard me singing the Florence music and not actually Florence. But that's okay because I had a blast and I'm still coming down. I'm still riding that high of seeing my queen idol, drag mother, goddess that is Florence Welsh in person. And I'm going to see her again in October and then again in September. Because you know, if you know, you know, when she tours, you better go catch as many shows as possible. While I was researching this week's episode, I kept having the weirdest deja vu of writing this up, doing the research, like even having the same sources and everything, but I scoured my computer, my Google Drive, everywhere that I do work, and I could not find anything about this episode. Like I've I've never actually written up this case, but the deja vu was something fierce this week. So I don't know, maybe it means something. Maybe I'm psychic. Maybe I also watched Final Destination this past week. Maybe it means, I don't know, nothing disastrous happened in my deja vu, though. Maybe it means it's going to be a really good episode. Keep watching. Keep listening. I know it really hasn't been promising thus far, but please, I promise, it's going to get good. I know y'all love the beginning of the episode glimpse into my shoddy brain function. Just welcome to my life. Ooh, this thingy has little thumb holes. Ooh, very Billie Eilish. Ooh, what do you want from me? Why are you wanting me? What are you want from me? Where do you want... Okay, stop. This week's case is the tragic murder and tragically publicized murder of Landy Martinez. This happened back in 2011, but a lot of the ongoing investigation trial business didn't clear up until 2016, so specials and footage and episodes of true crime shows came out about a year ago, if not a year and a half ago. And this week is interesting because 
I was actually contacted by a show I've been watching since I was a child. I'm not going to name them because it's really not that important. But the important part is that I was definitely not expecting to be contacted by them and they were, they know their shit. And they said that they were reaching out to true cri- LGBT queer true crime podcasters for their opinion on the episode that they were doing about Landy Martinez, so they sent a screener to us, and I shared my honest opinion that I wasn't the biggest fan of the way that it was covered. And I'll get into why I don't think it's the best coverage I've ever seen in a minute, but ever since I watched that screener and gave my feedback, I was like, well, I I need to cover this case myself. I need to do it my way. I need to find out more about Landy and less about the murderer. I never really care about the murderer's backstory. My goal is to always circle around the victim. You know all that. You all know that. Landy Martinez was born December 13th, 1990, and he was born in Cuba. But when he was very young, he moved to Florida to live with his dad and to do that American dream kind of thing. When he got to Miami with his dad, he had a very easy time making friends. He was a very easygoing person. He could easily go with the flow, and that attracted a lot of people to him. He was cool. Landy was also very passionate about people. He was passionate about social interaction and passionate about helping those around him. Common theme in my episodes, which is not a good place for this to be a common theme. Being good at making friends, Landy was very successful through high school socially. He graduated high school, went on to pursue an interest in nursing and further explore interest in himself and who he wanted to be as an adult. So by the age of 18, Landy realized that he was gay and started exploring that new side of his personality. And around the same time, Landy got a job in Tampa, Florida at an assisted living facility as a registered nursing assistant. Since it was known as LGBT friendly and it would be close to work, Landy decided to move to St. Petersburg, Florida that had some gay clubs, a nice nightlife scene, and like I said an easy commute, so it seemed ideal. Once he got comfortable at work and made some friends that way, he started going out into the gay nightlife scene and trying to meet some men, trying to find some trade. After he found some of his favorite local spots, naturally the next thing to do in any gay's life cycle is to find a best friend, a BFFL that you can drag along with you everywhere, go get coffee with in the morning, and do the best friend living your life BFFL thing. And Landy did just that. He met a friend at work. Gail Rigg also worked at the assisted living facility that Landy had just gotten a job at. And And in an interview with True Crime Daily, which is the same thing as Crime Watch Daily, just their different website thing, different branch kind of a deal, just thought it might be important to mention that. In that interview, Gail is quoted saying, Landy was a great guy and he did his job really well. He helped out the residents and was an awesome person. So Landy was obviously successful at his job. He was successful with the move and he was socially successful. He had found success in making friends, going out, and he was having a really good time living life as his authentic self. And then as the cycle of gay continues, next Next natural step after the best friend is get on Grindr, make an account, Grindr, Scruff, Hornet. This isn't an ad. 
don't make an account on all of those things unless you want to. Moving on. Landy meets somebody. While chatting on one of those apps, Landy meets Jose Adame, who lives back in Miami where Landy grew up. And after a few weeks of chatting, he decides, Landy, to go drive to Miami and pick up Jose so that they can meet and go on a date. Sparks flew immediately, and shortly thereafter, Landy and Jose were moving in together into a bedroom that they were going to rent from some roommates who were living together. Apparently, the relationship began normal enough, but very quickly went south when Gail, in that same interview, says, He asked my 11-year-old son if he wanted to go back to the apartment and smoke weed and watch pornos. Landy was there, and when the incident happened, he was highly pissed. Things quickly snowballed from that moment to utter chaos, and Landy called things off. He was not having Jose's predatory bullshit. He didn't want anything to do with that, and he moved the fuck out of there and went back to getting his life together because he was really enjoying it before Jose came along. After taking some time to cleanse his palate of that bad relationship, Landy meets another actually very nice guy named Jonathan. Jonathan Galacia was 26 years old, he had his shit together, and he actually really loved Landy for Landy. He didn't care about anything but that, and importantly, wasn't a predator. Landy's BFF Gail said, that relationship between Jonathan and Landy seemed more caring, more loving. You saw more posts on Facebook of like the cutesy things like hearts in the sand and stuff like that. So Landy was definitely past the shitty side. He was out of the whirlwind that Jose left him in, and even posting about how happy he was on Facebook. But that sends Jose into a whirlwind because he sees that Landy is in a new relationship and he's happy without him. How could that be? This is how sociopaths think. And the roommates that Jose was still living with, that Landy and he had moved in with together before Landy moved out, Jose stayed there and was scaring the shit out of all the roommates that lived there, being sketchy, neurotic, doing crazy things, and their roommates decided that they needed to put up security cameras. So they got that out of the way, and they got more comfortable, and Jose not having contacted Landy for a while, Landy got more comfortable, but that was all a big mistake, because apparently when the relationship started, Jose and Landy purchased a car together, and both of their names were on the title. Landy was the main purchaser, and then Jose was the co-signer. But regardless, Jose still had the car and had began ran running through red lights and racking up tickets on the car, knowing that they would be sent to Landy just to try to meddle and get Landy's attention and fuck with him. And those tickets, they usually have pictures attached, so Landy could see Jose in the car driving and was having 0% of it. And that progression kept going. Landy decided it was time to get a little petty. So Miss Landy goes to the GMV and apparently, it did not know you can do this, gets Jose's name taken off the title because he's just a co-signer and Jose has no legal right to that car anymore. So then Landy invites Jose out to a restaurant under the guise of mending their relationship and getting back together so that Jose would actually show. And when Jose gets there, Landy has called the sheriff, and the sheriff is there to tell Jose he needs to remove all of his belongings from the vehicle, and then Landy can hop in the truck, and he drives it away, and he leaves Jose at the restaurant, and Jose is just like, God damn. And Landy is just like, yes, 
man. Unfortunately, new boyfriend Jonathan was not the biggest fan of this petty back and forth, and he also didn't love the fact that Landy told Jose that they could get back together, and being a little insecure, Jonathan asks Landy to prove to him that he doesn't really want to get back together with Jose, and that all of that's over, there's going to be no more pettiness, he just wants proof somehow that things are going to be better now. So Landy decides to stage a three-way phone call between Jonathan, Jose, and himself, where he plans to tell Jose things are over and kind of get that confirmation back from Jose that, like, yeah, things are over, we're not meeting on the side, nothing sketchy is happening. So they do that, and then things get a little bit heated on the phone, Landy and Jose start going back and forth, and then Landy tells Jose, well, you know what, Jonathan is on the line, he's been listening the whole time, so he knows that we're over, we're over, me and Jonathan are going to go be happy. That makes Jose change up his tune a little bit. That's when Jose starts speaking directly to Jonathan and tells him, you know what, I give up, I surrender, you can have Landy, I'll leave you guys alone, I hope you're happy, I promise, I'll go live my life, you all live yours. As far as Landy and Jonathan know, that's the end of that, they can go be happy. Not eight hours later, when Jonathan wakes up, he sees texts from Landy's phone saying, I don't want to be with you anymore, I love Jose, Jose is the one I want to be with. It's over between you and I. And he's like, what the actual fuck? We just had a conversation about this before I went to bed and I wake up to this. This does not sound right. Meanwhile, police in the county that Landy lives in get a call. And before they can even ask what services the caller needs, they hear screams into the phone saying, quote, send me your help. Help. They want to kill me. Hurry up. Please help me. And then right after that, there's two gunshots and the phone drops silent. So they're in a panic. They know somebody's hurt. They know something's wrong. But all they can gather from the triangulating GPS, whatever they do to get that, was what street the call came from. So police go to the street to try to listen or see signs of anybody in trouble. Around that same time, Landy's landlord gets just a bad feeling because she isn't getting texts back from Landy. So she goes ahead and calls in a welfare check after she checks the security cameras at the house and those are disconnected. And when police get on the phone with her, they see that she wants a welfare check on the same street that Landy called 911 from. So police have the house they need to go to and they rush over there as quickly as possible. And it has been at this point 40 minutes since Landy called the police. So really not a lot of time in perspective of emergency services. According to the officers who responded, it looked like a burglary off the bat because there was a screen taken out of a window and the window was shattered, making, you know, that clear point of entry. And inside, there was a big gap on the wall where there used to be a 70-inch TV. So it looks like a burglary from the curb. But as they walk further into the house... They actually find that 70-inch TV on a table in another room and start seeing blood on the floor. That all leads into the bathroom and the bedroom area at the back of the home. When they walk into the bathroom, they see the toilet is just covered in blood. The shower door is off of its hinges on the floor. There's Drano, duct tape, and a bloody knife in the bathtub and more blood splattered throughout the room. So they know somebody's been tortured. I mean, that's clear signs of torture and there's blood, so somebody's probably hurt. 
and they move on to the bedroom where they find Landy with a gunshot to the head and the chest dead. It's clearly a murder. There is no question. So police immediately start investigating the homicide. Off the bat, police dug into Landy, reaching out to family and friends to try to get information on anybody who might have wanted to hurt him or any drama or getting that first step. When they break the news to Jonathan, aside from him being absolutely crushed, he tells the police that he was concerned all morning because of the text that he'd gotten from Landy saying that he wanted it to be over and that he loved Jose because he knew that Jose wasn't stable, that he he wasn't a normal person. I mean, he drove through red lights and got tickets sent, and, and that's not a normal thing to do. That's stalker behavior. And Jonathan was already very concerned, and now his worst nightmare had come true. Police don't find anything in the house to help them find who might have done it, but what they do get is a cell phone stashed under a mattress and the information from Jonathan that Jose Adame is going to be suspect number one. When police opened the phone, they found very disturbing footage in the camera roll of Landy tied with duct tape and bloody, screaming for his life and begging somebody behind the camera named Jose, being told to say, I love you, Jose. I'll never leave you, Jose. It's not Jose's fault. I mean, it's fucked up shit on this video. It's a snuff film, literally. That video put the picture together Police also found that that phone was Landy's phone, the one used to make the call to 911. And it turns out that Landy and Jose had the same phone. So when Jose was doing the filming, he grabbed the wrong phone. And when Landy got it back from him at some point during the scuffle and called 911, he was able to stash it under the mattress. So Jose thought he had the video and everything with him when he left. But in reality, he left a video of him committing the crime under the mattress at the crime scene. Police still can't find Jose, so they enlist the help of U.S. Marshals, who eventually find him hiding in North Carolina. He insists that he has zero connection to this murder because he's been in North Carolina the whole time, and it would have been impossible for him to be in Florida. But they already have a shit ton of evidence, so they take him in for questioning and show him the video. He doesn't respond to the video verbally, but after watching it for only a few seconds, he throws up, which is pretty clear to me. You were there. You know what happened, and you know the person in the video. Because he wasn't talking, the detectives knew that whoever held the camera must have been family or somebody very close to Jose, so they went and started questioning close family members, and one of his cousins revealed to police that Jose had actually taken her mom's car and her little brother to Florida one night and came back the same night. So police went to that car and searched it and found bloody black gloves in that car, tying the vehicle, Jose, and his accomplice to Florida to the murder. I mean, this is everything you needed more to charge him. So police do just that and charge Jose Adame with first-degree murder. During the trial... The defense had the gall to say that Jose's 16-year-old cousin did the shooting, therefore Jose is innocent. Probably because a 16-year-old would get a lesser charge, but come on. This is the most personal thing. There's a video of it. There's no way to prove. And they didn't. And Jose was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole ever. I mean, even though he's away forever, this case is so brutal that the trauma it's left in its wake is 
I mean, it's irreparable. Not that any trauma is reparable, but I, come on, this, this is wild. And these specials that cover it, every single one, my biggest problem is that they show the cell phone footage. That's a snuff film. There's no need for any, but it's just sensationalized, attention-grabbing, gore-seeking bullshit. Nobody wants that. I mean, sure, there are people who want that, but this isn't productive. This is further harming the family, further traumatizing victims and survivors and people left behind. And it takes away from time that could be used to talk about the life of the person who had their life taken away. And that's how I feel about that. I will fight about it. That's this week's episode. It's a frustrating one, for sure. Um, most of these cases are frustrating, but this one definitely bothers me more because of the way that it's been covered. It's just, it's bullshit to me. Bullshit, I tell you. Well, you better come back next week for more Neon Dream. Ice Cream Dream. Put it in the green. Holidine. Nope, she's canceled. Leave her where she stays. Leave her where she lies. Uh, alright. Clearly this is enough for one day. I'm going off the rails. I'm already there. I'm off the rails officially. The train has whoop-de-doopted and we're done. Anyway, I'll see you next week. Bye. Mm -hmm.